Welcome to Yale Cancer Center Answers with your hosts, Drs. Anise Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. Dr. Chagpar is Associate Professor of Surgical Oncology and Director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital. Dr. Higgins is Professor of Therapeutic Radiology and of Obstetrics, Gynecology, and Reproductive Sciences. And Dr. Gore is Director of Hematological Malignancies at Smilo and an expert on myelodysplastic syndromes. Yale Cancer Center Answers features weekly conversations about the research, diagnosis, and treatment of cancer. And if you'd like to join the conversation, you can email your questions and comments to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. This week, it's a conversation about bioinformatics and cancer research with Dr. Michael Krauthammer. Dr. Krauthammer is an associate professor of pathology at Yale School of Medicine, Here's Dr. Anise Chagpar. So, Michael, you know, we throw around big words like bioinformatics, but what exactly is that? Right, that's a very good question. Um, I think bioinformatics, or what some people call it biomedical informatics, um, deals with information and how information flows in healthcare and um, the biomedical domain. And if you think about it, really, um, these days, much of what we do in the clinic or in research is dealing with digital data. Um, we have um, radiology, like digital ra- radiology. In pathology, we have digital um, um, pathology slides. Um, we have electronic medical records. And more and more, we do a lot of sequencing, DNA sequencing of patients. And what we get from that is really um, the DNA information of those patients, essentially letters, a lot of letters, there's a lot of data. So what we do in our field is dealing with this type of data. So what are we doing with the data? We are um, investigating or researching how we can better store the data, how we can better retrieve it, how we can find patterns in the data that are of interest or of clinical inf- importance, or how we can find new lo- knowledge in the data that is not obvious. So it's really a field that deals with information and a lot of data that is more and more common in our field. So how do you do that? I mean, when people think about the human genome and think back to the Human Genome Project and how long it took to sequence the human genome and thinking about the thousands of genes that we have, all made up of four letters, right, A, C, T, and G, It's always a bit surprising when people talk about bioinformatics and getting all of this data and then trying to find patterns and trying to find differences between normal and abnormal. Tell our listeners a little bit about how exactly that happens. I mean, is it just sitting at computers and trying to program in ways of finding mistakes or differences or patterns? Right. Um, it's essentially that, right? But um, obviously the knowledge of the tools that are needed to do that. And you, you mentioned, very inter- uh, interestingly, you mentioned the Human Genome Project. And, you know, what happened there is that we, we built essentially the scaffold of the human genome, essentially what we consider the normal human genome. And up to today, this is really the crucial piece that we need to do all of our work. So what we what we, t- what we take first is that scaffold that was done maybe 15 years ago now. And we are adding to that scaffold the 
individual DNA information that comes from the patients. And obviously that DNA information is, might be slightly different, if, especially if it's from cancer, right? It might be slightly different than that, rec that scaffold that we built back then. And so what we're doing is we are building tools to take those and when, when we do the sequencing in patients, we have millions and millions of those letters. We're building tools or we have tools to match those letters from the patients to that scaffold that we built back then and to see what are the differences and, and find those patterns. And the key thing to understand is that um, we need um, big computers to do that, powerful computers that have a lot of storage because we're talking about terabytes of data. That's a magnitude more what people are usually dealing with when they, you know, store a, a Word documents or whatnot. And so it's really having a knowledge of those um, tools, um, how to operate the computers to do those massive kind of comparisons that I've just mentioned. And so, you know, when we think about this, it seems a little bit like Star Trek, right? Um, you've got all of this data and you're doing this, these computations, but can that be done in real time? How fast can you find these mutations? I mean, when you talk about big computers, large data, I mean, is this clinically relevant or is this something that is, at least for now, primarily in the realm of research? Um, I think it's quickly moving out of the realm of, of research. Um, um, I think um, here at Yale, for example, we have um, computers that essentially are composed of thousands of little computers so we can split up the tasks into smaller subtasks so that we can speed up things. So these days we can get results really fast. Um, you know, maybe in a, in a day we can do massive computation for for an individual patient. So, um, so it's it's pretty real time. You know, um, it might be not instantaneous, but it might be in you know within a time frame that you could cause uh, tell um, say that it's clinically relevant. So, can you give us an example of some of the work that you do that really translates kind of the the bioinformatics uh, that allows patients to benefit from this work? Well, sure. Um, um, I maybe have to go a little bit back, if that's yeah, all right. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Um, so, in the last eight years, um, I've worked with um, a very strong team here at Yale. Um, um, in, in the melanoma or skin cancer research. And uh, we've been performing essentially sequencing studies of um, hundreds of um, skin cancer patients using these powerful tools I just mentioned. And we were discovering the changes um, in those cancer patients from the normal scaffold I was mentioning before. And we were able to discover the key changes that are important in that disease. And Particularly, we were able to focus on um, or subdivide melanoma using these methodologies into four major groups of patients. Ones that have a so-called um, BRAF mutation, those that have an NRAS mutation, and and a third group, which we've worked very hard on, um, is and we just discovered that there is a third group that have an NF1 mutation. And so. Um, these discoveries um, allow us now to um, sequence patients in the clinic right, for these types of mutations. And we can talk a little bit more about it maybe later, but we also have an understanding how these mutations can potentially be treated by so-called targeted therapies. And so 
I would say that our work has a direct influence on future um, or very immediate, actually, cancer care by offering um, sequencing um, um, instrument, uh, procedures, essentially, to discover these mutations and then um, move on to targeted therapy. Well, so I think that that's really critical, right, uh, is that the idea that every person's tumor is different. Um, and so we've now moved into this concept that, you know, your melanoma may be very different from the next guy's melanoma, may be very different from the next guy's melanoma. So really personalized medicine and, and personalized cancer care. So talk a little bit about how you go from finding these mistakes, these mutations, that then you can say this is a this mutation or a that mutation, to actually finding the drug that will react to your mutation and kill off your cancer cell um, as opposed to somebody else's. Right. That's a very important question. Now, I think we are at the very early age in the discovery phase, essentially, between essentially finding the mistake and then to have a drug, right? We're not developing the drug, we're finding the mistake. But what we also do potentially, and sometimes more successful than in other times, is once we find the mistake, we can, in the computer, fi figure out essentially which protein it affects, so which um, um, element in the cell it will affect uh, and how it affects it, and then, by integrating knowledge essentially from the cell and the molecular machinery of the cell, we can figure out how this change affects what we often call a pathway, which is essentially um, a common function of the cell. And often, more often than not, as, and um, we find that this common function or pathway already has an existing drug mm -hmm. that um, affects that functional pathway. So by mapping essentially our knowledge of the mistake to a certain common function and an available drug to counteract that function or whatnot, um, we can make that kind of link. And then once we've made that link about a new um, mistake and a potential drug, right, then we can propose that to maybe a molecular biologist to, to, to check that in a, in a mouse model or in an in vitro model. And then if successfully tested, right, we can move on to clinical trials. So, but we are really at the very early discovery phase of all of that, um, building hypotheses, linking mistakes to potential drugs, right? So it sounds to me like all of this really starts with the patient material, people presenting with a cancer that then you sequence uh, and see whether the uh, sequence determines that there's a mutation that may already be known or potentially a novel mutation. Absolutely right. Um, I just have to give kudos here to the imme uh, immense team at Yale. Essentially, um, uh, we have um, uh, a big program at Yale called the Yale uh, Spore and Skin Cancer, which is a large translational grant, one of two that exists at Yale. and. Within that grant, essentially, we have the resources to collect patient specimens. It's so important to collect those, um, store them, annotate them, and then sequence them. And having that whole infrastructure is extremely important. Um, just want to say also that um, in a related note, what's very interesting right now is that um, bioinformatics can 
also make the links between diseases that have not been so obvious before. Like, for example, um, the BRAF mutations that we discovered in, in uh, that we discovered, but it was known, right, has just recently been discovered through a bioinformatics type of um, exploration in a completely different cancer, um, um, in a blood cancer, actually. And so suddenly kind of because it's all information, right? We can we can make connection between cancers, which we, we so far have, have have been thought to be completely different, like a blood cancer, skin cancer. What's what's similar between them, but on a molecular level, we see that they actually have the same molecular changes, and that has enormous consequences about treatment. Essentially, suddenly a treatment that works in one cancer can also be um, available and and most probably successful in some other completely un, so far unrelated cancer. And that, I think, is an uh, uh, enormous potential, essentially, of, of integrating data, putting a lot of data together and finding those connections. So it kind of seems like, you know, the, the future uh, seems like it will be based on mutation rather than origin of uh, cell type. Yeah. Uh, so that you could have a brain cancer or a breast cancer or colon cancer or a melanoma. Um, and and whereas right now we treat them like a brain cancer and a breast cancer and a colon cancer and a melanoma, that in the future we will see what genes are mutated and treat them potentially the same if the same mutation exists. Yeah, I, I'm so fascinated by um, how the, what we call the classification of disease, which mm -hmm. was so far based, as you say, on the origin of the disease is unraveling really in front of our eyes and, and potentially uh, is re-emerging as a new classification based on the molecular changes. And I can just give you one more anecdote on that. Um, in the one subgroup of melanoma, um, the NF1 subgroup that um, ha un, uh, have now been kind of discovered, um, we find other mutations there. And these other mutations turn out to actually be the same mutation that happen in what we call germline um, diseases. And so what I'm trying to say here is um, that it's not only cancers that share these mutations among each other, but also the same mutation happens in like what we call germline or inherited diseases. And this is an amazing development. And so really what bioinformatics is helping essentially is putting all the dots together and merging diseases that so far has been thought to be completely unrelated. So we're going to learn more about how these dots all get connected right after we take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information about bioinformatics with my guest, Dr. Michael Krauthammer. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year and nearly 200,000 nationwide. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Clinical trials are currently underway at federally designated comprehensive cancer centers, such as Yale Cancer Center and its Milo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven, to make innovative new treatments available to patients. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. 
This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. You're listening to WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas. Welcome back to Yale Cancer Center Answers. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. Michael Krauthammer. We're talking about bioinformatics, but actually, we're talking about more than just bioinformatics. We're talking about how the field of bioinformatics is really revolutionizing how we think about cancer and how we think about disease. So right before the break, Michael, you were saying that one of the interesting things that you had found, especially in your melanoma research, was in this particular group of melanoma patients who had a genetic mutation called NF1, that there actually was a correlation with kind of normal germline somatic mutations. Tell us more about that and the implications of it. Right. These are actually uh, normal um, um, germline mutations. But think about this, essentially. um, Sometimes um, scientific fields are working in parallel. So we have the cancer field and the cancer genetics field, and I told you a little bit how we discovered um, the NF1 mutations. But in parallel, um, there's another field called um, clinical genetics. And this this field deals with, say, for example, a a child that is born and is not doing well, and um, it turns out that this child might have a a key mutation in an enzyme that, um, you know, has some metabolic consequences for the for the kid, and so uh, what, what what clinical genetics does it's it's sequencing um, non-cancer patients um, for the mistakes in their DNA, which is inherited, right, and causes a lot of troubles, right, and has a multi there are multitudes of syndromes that are described where kids um, have um, developmental delay and other other things, and so. Um, and clinical genetics has been around for, for ages, right? And so there's so much knowledge about the mistakes and what kind of effects it has. So it turns out that in parallel to the melanoma field, there has been um, a, um, investigation in clinical genetics into patients that have so-called rhizopathies. And rhizopathy patients, these are patients um, that have some um non-life-threatening, but nevertheless very severe symptomology. And the most uh, famous one is the uh, neurofibromatosis patients. These are actually patients that have um, germline, so inherited mutation in NF1. And maybe you already see the connections. Obviously, this is the same gene that the third subgroup of melanoma patient has. So it started to interest us What's the connection here, right? So here are patients that are born with a mistake in this gene and have, you know, have these particular changes across their bodies, while melanomas have also the same changes, right? But they, 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 they form skin cancer. So we were interested to, to explore this, this, this kind of same level, essential of findings. And it turns out then that it's not just NF1 that is shared between um, these diseases. There are also other genes. And we found now at least uh, 16 genes in this category where um, patients have these mistakes uh, at birth, right? And it affects them in some way, right? And the same uh, mistakes are also found in the skin cancers, right? And cause this malignant growth. And 
what we can do, and essentially, again, it's by information, connecting information, essentially, we can learn from each other, from those two fields. And I think for the, um, it just shows, essentially, the power of um, information processing and bringing things together that so far have been thought to be completely unrelated. So do patients with neurofibromatosis have an increased risk of melanoma? That's a very good question. Um, just slightly, actually, and that was surprising too. Um, they do have a little bit increased risk and increased risk at other cancers, but um, it's just that it's just you can't just have one mutation get a, a malignant growth, right? I mean, you, you know, usually melanoma have, have many other mutations, and and so. Um, you still need a lot of other bad luck, other mistakes to happen, in my opinion, before you get a full growth. But they have a slight increased risk, but it's not, surprisingly, it's not enormously higher. And so when when a patient with neurofibromatosis gets a melanoma, is it an NF1 subtype of melanoma or is it any melanoma? Um, because it's not so frequent, I would say it's any melanoma, but we have at least one patient in our um, cohort that is an, is a NF1, a germline NF1 patient that, that um, had an NF1 melanoma. Yeah. So, you know, now that we're talking about this crosstalk, because certainly it, it's interesting, right? Um, and you can see how even clinically patients with neurofibromatosis often have skin manifestations of their neurofibromatosis. And you wonder whether that may be related to... Oh, it's clearly related, right? It's absolutely clearly related. And I hope that we... St um, because we can now take the research that's been done there, right? And, and just see, is anything applicable for melanoma treatment? Right, and but also the other way. I mean, um, pe people with neurofibromatosis they have these um, skin nodules and, and and other things, and it's you know it can be. Um, so how how do you help them? So why not think about using melanoma drugs for them, right? And um, and I would say that's not a complete impossibility, right? So suddenly there's cross fertilization in terms of the knowledge, uh, the molecular knowledge, but also on the treatment knowledge, back and forth really, and. And I think we will see much more of this type of um, cross-fertilization by merging information that we gather now from, um, you know, sequencing so many different disparate diseases, um, you know, from cancer to neurofibromatosis and so forth, right? Mm -hmm. So ha has that next step been taken? Because that that certainly seems to be the most exciting part, is that if there are, a, and, and you'll have to educate us, uh, are there good treatments for neurofibromatosis that now people are thinking may be helpful in NF1 uh, melanomas and vice versa? I haven't um, looked into it too deeply, but I think the other way, really, I think... Um, um, I think on this program, you, you must have talked about some of the um, targeted therapies for melanoma, like MEK inhib inhibitors. And I would say, so MEK inhibitor is, 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 a, is a, a drug that, that works in the same pathway, essentially, than the BRAF and RAS and NF1 mutations. And so I think like a MEK inhibition might actually work in a neurofibromatosis patient. And I, But I would have to study more closely whether any of this is being considered in a trial or so yeah. forth. So, it, but it is, as you say, very interesting that there is this crosstalk between, you know, people who have benign conditions that are also genetically mediated and the genetic mutations that we can find in cancers. Um, so, how, you know, one of the things that, that it makes us think about is how frequent there is sharing of information. I mean, the, the president recently in the State of the Union address talked about this moonshot. And as part of that, I think one of the big thrusts was, 
you know, sharing of information, sharing of information not only between uh, different cancer types and different, uh, but but also different groups, uh, different institutions. How important is that in bioinformatics, and and how does that occur, and does it occur? Right, it's a, it's a very important question, and actually, um, I've I've been here at Yale now for twelve years, and I've been involved uh, in around two thousand six in a big project that was part of the, an NCI project called CA Big, and it it was. That was part of the earlier administration, not on the Obama administration. And the idea was to foster sharing, to open up the silos and to share cancer information. And interestingly, it was a complete failure. Oh my goodness. They put they put millions of dollars into uh, hundreds of millions of dollars into this project. And and um, and, you know, I. I was I was part of that whole um, endeavor too, and you know, reflecting back on it, right? Um, one of the issues with sharing data is that often people then say, "Okay, let's let's first agree on a standard how to share things, so we understand." Um, a standard means that you ch- you you're not just give you I, I don't give you just um, a USB stick essentially with the data, but I tell you kind of how the data is organized. And one of the problems is that finding those standards is 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 is, is a complicated process. And by the time you agreed on on standards, um, the field has moved on mm-hmm. essentially. And so, um, and that's one issue. The other issue is that people don't sometimes don't really want to share data, and or maybe because it's time constraints. You know, you're just busy, and so a lot of and the uh, um, HIPAA concerns and uh, privacy concerns and many issues. So it turned out to be extremely difficult, right? And so. But I still think it is important, and and I agree with the current uh, administration that we have to foster it. So, um, but we have to take into account kind of how fast things are moving, and that we we it's it, it's more important to share the data rather than agree on how we're sharing it. And so, um, um, I think looking forward, I, I would I would I would hope that um, we find practical solutions to overcome these hurdles. Right. It's, so it's not just to say let's share data. But actually, to make it also happen, and um, I, I hope you know this time around, maybe the lessons learned from this prior experience, and addressing some of the issues about um, how how to make it more effective. But it seems to me that that's really what bioinformatics is all about. It's it's the use of big data and and information. And if I uh, if I understand correctly, I mean you're really looking for those mutations in patient samples um, and comparing that to data, for example, that was generated with that scaffold in the Human Genome Project, and then looking at your mutations in melanoma and comparing that to mutations that maybe other people have found in, for example, neurofibromatosis. So are there buckets of genomic or genetic data out there for researchers like you to tap into? Right. Um, Or are there still these kind of... blocks uh, for for people to share that data to help move that field forward. Yeah, I think we are lucky, especially in, in the sequencing field. I mean, a DNA mutation, the mistake, the mistakes that we find, they're so black and white that everyone agrees on, you know, there's no, that, I think the standards have been set, so to speak. So 
you know, when I show, when, when, when someone shows me uh, sequencing data from another institution, I know exactly what I'm looking at. So we already passed that. We don't have to reinvent that. And so I think in with sharing sequencing data, I think we, uh, it's really the one kind of the one modality where things can go very rapidly and very efficiently. And I think it's already happening, right? So there's, for example, the TCG, so-called TCGA project um, where the National Cancer Institute has, has sequenced thousands of, of, of patients of, of different cancer types. And this data is in, a, in one bucket somewhere where you can just download it and use it. And so, and now we want to go um, and expand that, right, using these moonshots programs. And I think we will be pretty much um, able to do that because we, we know the standards we um, and we know how to share the, these types of data. So I'm, I'm pretty optimistic that this time around, especially on the, on the, on, with sequencing data, we will have successful massive efforts to um, pool information from a lot of different patients and, 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 and draw new, new lessons and conclusions what, what drug works best in which patients. And for that, we need a lot, a lot, as you say, a lot of patients because, um, you know, each patient a bit different, right? And so we need to get a good representation of this, of, of kind of what's going on. Yeah. So one of the things that you had mentioned um, was that you're part of Yale's uh, melanoma spore, which is, uh, for our listeners, a spore is a, a very large NCI grant that's uh, fairly prestigious. And, um, and as part of that, with the sequencing that you do on those patient samples, does that information then go back to the NCI to be part of the TCGA so that everybody can benefit from that? Or, or how do you disseminate uh, the results of, of this? Right. So um, first, there's a, often a mandate these days when you publish in, in, in some of the, these journals like Nature Genetics or others that you actually make the, the data publicly available. And it's also a mandate from, from within the NIH if, if it's NIH-sponsored research. And so what the uh, NIH has done, they have um, built these buckets, essentially, um, for you to submit the data. And uh, one of those buckets um, is called um, dbGaP. Another one is called SRA and so forth. And these are essentially um, well-curated buckets where you send your data, terabytes, a lot of data, and they will host it for you and they will make it available for other researchers to use. And for example, our melanoma data is now hosted in one of those buckets and other researchers can uh, request access to that. And the only thing they have to do is to fill out some sort of a use um, questionnaire. So um, there's a little bit of matching. So, so we, we're not essentially sharing all the data, of, um, but the, the data to the right people. Dr. Michael Krauthammer is an associate professor of pathology at Yale School of Medicine. We invite you to share your questions and comments. You can send them to canceranswers at yale.edu, or you can leave a voicemail message at 888-234-4YCC. And as an additional resource, archived programs are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. We'd like to thank the Yale Cancer Center for providing production support for this program, and we'd also like to thank Renee Gaudette, Emily Fenton, and the staff of the Yale Broadcast and Media Center. I'm Bruce Barber, hoping you'll join us again next Sunday evening at 6 for another edition of Yale Cancer Center Answers here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.